Hello, I'm Alex Rutkeen. I'm a barrister at Third Man Essex Chambers. And today I've got with me uh, Dr. Mark Talbot, um, who I'll allow uh, to introduce himself. But um, so over to you, Mark. Hi, Alex. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me uh, on. And um, I'm a consultant in palliative medicine. I work in the Lindra Cancer Centre and University Hospital of Flandoc in uh, Cardiff. And uh, I know you through through Twitter. And uh, I suggested it might be uh, quite interesting to have a, a conversation, maybe from the clinical side of things to the um, to the, the the law side of things, because I think our our work very much intersects uh, quite a lot and um, you kindly agreed so um, I think if, if you could host this on your on your on your podcast on your blog site then I'd be very honored It'd be fantastic and I've even bought a little tomato timer along to, to interrupt us uh, rudely when when, when we mid, mid conversations so that we don't go over 20 minutes so I hope uh, I hope that's okay that's perfect and I'm really thank you Mark it was your idea and I think it, it is a really good conversation to start and a conversation to have because I think one of the things that I encounter a lot in my practice as a barrister I mean both in court but then also when I kind of well before coronavirus was wandering the country bothering people mm. was the fact that that doctors and lawyers we're, we're working in the same zone and we need to be working together but we don't always quite get what each other what we we do and the kind of myths arise and um, you have a myth sometimes perhaps about a lawyer mm -hmm. i might have myths about you so i think if we can start having these conversations and, and if mm -hmm. this works I'd, I'd love this to be the first of several um i think it's just really important can i can i start with one question which mm -hmm. is is always something which has always really kind of interested me just as a lawyer mm -hmm. reading about cpr reading about cardio cardiopulmonary res uh, resuscitation and, mm -hmm. and sort of having the urban myths about it you're a doctor would you want to have cpr yourself oh uh i mean i i changed my mind a little bit about this is quite a bit so I, I think as a medical student i would have said yes certainly um and then as a junior doctor i probably would have said no certainly not thank you very much it's uh, it's it's pretty pretty unsuccessful it's pretty brutal um and, and and now as a sort of father maybe i'm sort of perhaps thinking more well if there was a, a faint possibility of e eking life out a little bit longer maybe maybe yes maybe no i i it, it's a tricky one i haven't got a, a direct answer for you there um but probably earing towards no um and and certainly um if i, mean, I haven't got any long-term conditions at the moment i haven't got any uh, I haven't got, I'm lucky that I haven't got cancer and I haven't got uh, anything else that I'm seriously ill with. It, if it were a situation where I did have, say, uh, a, a serious cancer, which had spread in my body, I would certainly get uh, my GP to fill in a, in a DNA CPR form because it's not something I would want. And I would probably, um, um, I've got an ADRT, I've got an advanced decision to refuse uh, treatment in specific circumstances. I, I might elaborate with a bit more detail on that one as well, depending on what long-term condition or conditions uh, I had. Uh, so no direct answer for you there maybe, but uh, e uh, you know, eking towards no, um, because as a procedure or a set of procedures is pretty unsuccessful, it's pretty brutal, and you know as a palliative care doctor i get the phone calls later on maybe a year later sometimes four or five years later saying from relatives saying why did you allow it to happen you, you knew cpr wouldn't be successful why why didn't we prepare for this when he went into hospital he had cpr 
and there was terrible hours and it, it was a horrendous experience. So I, I look at it from, from that point of view. Yeah. Well, why do you, I mean, if I can just see that for a second, what, why is it, do you think that CPR has got such a, almost kind of mythic status? I mean, certainly it's something that, that people talk about a lot. And I'm just sort of interested is because there's so many other interventions mm. that you could provide as a, as a doctor. Why is it, do you think CPR has been kind of singled out? I think it's because of the urgency and the immediacy of it. Um, you get called to a ward, you get fast bleep to a ward, someone has collapsed, collapsed, is lying on the floor, and you need to make a decision then and there whether you're going to continue and, and give CPR or not. And I think most of the time, doctors, if there's no prior decision uh, or there's no prior um, kind of conversation that has been had, will eke towards giving it, uh, giving full CPR. Because, and this might sound insane, but because it's easier. It's easier to, to fall into your protocols and into your procedures and, and to do something. And then later, you then perhaps, you know, this is very honest now, you perhaps later don't think about the, 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 the family members or the friends complaining, saying, why didn't you try to do anything? We're going to take you to court maybe or something like that because you didn't try and do enough. And, and, and perhaps it's just that, that, that easy, ease of falling into protocols rather than saying, hang on, guys. What are we doing here? Let's have a discussion about this. And this is a horrendous procedure. We, we shouldn't give it right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's so, I mean, the protocols, but also, I mean, I suppose I should say that there must be a, I mean, there is a very clear presumption in favor of taking steps to secure life. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, yes. that, that's a sort of legal presumption and it's, it's also a, it's a, the kind of heart of, of, of a medical ethic as well that, that we, yeah. you need to do this yeah. and I'm sort of wondering what how one can think through if you uh, from a medical perspective what, what one can do to explain to people mm. how the how these balances how these decisions could be made better yeah i mean it, it's it's nearly sort of a, a sequence of fallacies uh, and you need to go back to step one in the sequence of fallacies where um, a lot of procedures get this sort of you know methic status of being something that they're built up to something that they are not um and i've often talked about to, to students and, and and to others who will listen about about the media and how they've maybe built up medical procedures to something they are that they are not and so perhaps you know a, a general perception if, if i weren't a medic if, if i was doing another job i might think well cpr is pretty successful i saw that footballer um i saw that footballer collapsing on the pitch he had you know more than 45 minutes worth of cpr and, and he's, he's he's okay now um, or I, I watched that program, House or, or ER, and, and, and every episode there's a CPR case there and, and they all come out of it fine. And, and it's, it's nearly built up to something that it isn't. So I think uh, the, the education on, on, on part of all of us to sort of describe what it is and what it isn't is really important. And then the balancing act between actually saying, well, we can just give default um, medicines and procedures just just like that because they they work so fantastically well. Uh, that that um, that crumbles then in, in in a sense, and you can sort of say, well, actually, there's a hell of a lot of harm that uh, procedures can do, and there's a lot of harm that CPR can do as well. And I think that's a that's a really important one to 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 remember for all of us. We need to be humble in in, in the things we give, but also in the things we we don't give. Yeah. Uh, I had one other question. We, 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 as it were, agreed beforehand that we had two questions to ask each other, and I've already started cross-examining you. Uh -huh. um, one, one other question I did just have, and then 
then as it were, we can put the, 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 the shoe on the other foot hmm. is I, I'm, as a lawyer, I engage with doctors in different contexts. And one of the things I'm always sort of struck by is, is the extent to which I probably know that I don't know something. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I'd really like, you know, so I, I'm sort of just about enough that I don't understand all clinical realities. But if there was one thing that you could say to lawyers more generally, including lawyers and judges, because judges you know, come from lawyers, mm-hmm. th- that you'd like them to understand about clinical realities, what would it be? I've thought about this one, and I think that the thing that comes back to my mind is, is um, I suppose it's it's rare that a lawyer might be in a hospital at three o'clock in the morning faced with a, a, a very complex decision. Uh, but in the cold light of day, in a, in a courtroom, I suppose, it can all seem so much more straightforward, and you should have done this, and you ought to have done this. Uh, and I, I read through some of the court cases, and you kind of sort of see that the presumption is, well, you know, in an irrational state of mind, you should have done this and you should have taken this decision and you ought to have done this. Um, and I suppose it's there are so many um, aspects of, of, of being up at any part of the night and, and decision making that come into it. You nearly need to draw in who the doctor or the nurse has seen beforehand, how many people they've seen beforehand, the, the situation, whether they've run to the ward or whether they've walked to the ward. Their, their tiredness levels and, and, and all these, these, these other things. And I, I don't know how you can incorporate that in, in, in many ways, but um, I think, I suppose what I'm trying to say is that um, it's tricky when you're faced with a situation where you're seeing someone and you're making a decision um, and you, you're asking yourself, should this be done or shouldn't this be done? And then also uh, a decision on should I talk to the patient who's maybe on a spinal board and who's vomiting blood uh, at this moment in time uh, about whether they would want um, CPR or not want CPR. It's, it's, it's very, very difficult. And it, it'll lead me on to my, my first question to you, actually. But, but that sort of distinguishing between I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to cause distress now by having this conversation. Am I going to do harm? That, that's that's one thing that I think is very tricky, especially if you're desperately tired and and and, and faced with this absolutely chaotic, horrendous situation. And then the other thing, I suppose, is the decision making in terms of a lot of the time when when you stabilise a situation in, in medicine, a lot of the time actually things are okay and you can stabilise the patient till the next day and and you've got a bit more time to think things through then. But in in in, in the night time you're sort of thinking they've just come in and there is a chance that they might deteriorate and die so you know should i talk to them or should i phone the relatives and tell them that i think it's time to actually make a decision on how far we would go with interventions or not and then you're thinking well if i phone them and everything is fine tomorrow they'll they maybe maybe they'll complain or maybe they'll complain a month later to say Dr. Talbot phoned us up and he gave us the fear of our life and it was really horrendous and everything was fine and the person ended up coming out of hospital and was all okay but we would have really appreciated not having that 3.30 in the morning telephone call that was really horrendous, really awful versus them deteriorating and you haven't made that phone call. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, that, that's something that I think perhaps some lawyers and some barristers, you know, wouldn't give a stuff about. But I think uh, you know some 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 lawyers and barristers who who really care about you know advanced care planning and, and the MCA and, and and hospitals and the interface between medicine and and the law will will somehow manage to incorporate. I suspect. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's uh, at one level, the law is the law. Mm. I mean, well, at all levels, the law, the law is the law. Yeah. Uh, and I think one of the, I think you've really put your finger on, on something really challenging, which is if the law says X, Y, and Z, you shall do this, then you shall do this. And it is challenging sometimes, especially after the event, to then go, well, why didn't you do X, Y, and Z? especially when X, Y, and Z would have potentially avoided a negative outcome, a bad outcome. Yeah. And actually bad outcome, I suspect here, you might be identifying both as the person has died, hmm. but also actually that the person has lived, hmm. but in a very substantially worse state or very, a very bad state, as it were. And actually it turns out that, for instance, you know what, the, the person really, really would not have wanted to have that intervention. Yes. But you've carried it out now, and is as it were, you're left with this. And 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 the thing I have to, I never. It's phenomenally difficult to try not to slip into mm. is that thing of the retrospectoscope. Mm. You know, with every single outcome, you know what the end point is. So yes. you know what the end point is. Yeah. And at every point where something didn't happen, mm. well, there's the counterfactual. Yeah, that's right. And the thing I I, I always. It's, it's always trying to emphasize to medics, but it is actually, it's challenging for lawyers and judges to apply or coroners, for instance, mm. in some circumstances, mm. is especially the Mental Capacity Act is about reasonableness and practicability. Mm. And it's that, and what one's supposed to be doing are in the after the event situation is say, well, what did Dr. Tyrant know at that point? Yeah. You know, what was actually reasonable for him to do? What was, yes. what was actually practicable? Yeah. And that's one of the things I always try and explain um, when I'm doing because I do an awful lot of training. And when, I do, when I'm trying to explain about the Winspear case, which mm. you'll be familiar with, but yes. not everyone listening might be, which is the one where, where Carl Winspear was in hospital. Mm. He, young man, 28 year old with learning disability. And the question was in the middle of the night, should mm. I put a do not resuscitate notice on his records? Mm. And in fact, he dies, not because of a lack of CPR, not being carried out, but of something else. But because the courts have previously identified that CPR is such a, well, such a potentially important intervention hmm. that the medics saying, well, it's not going to happen. Yeah. That's a potentially huge interference with their Article 8 rights. Yeah. That at that point, the doctor should have said, well, I should be ringing mum. Yeah. But that was there in particular because mum had said, I don't care what time of day or night it is, you should ring me yes yes and yeah. so there that was a, a really important bit of information which in the kind of where does this go towards what i do that was definitely in the well you need to be doing it yeah 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 i think that's what that's one of the one of the aspects but i mean i have to say that, that the cpr cases i mean the, the, the tracy case and the winspear case are two where i think there's been quite it's quite a challenging interface between clinical reality and the law mm. Because they're very crystalline cases in terms of explaining very clearly, this is what you should be doing. Yes, yes. And Tracy, I mean, did have because a clinic, because clinical bodies did intervene to try and explain realities. Hmm. Came just it did come back just from hmm. saying under all circumstances talk to the patient. Yes. And and it came just back to say, except if it's going to cause them actual physical or psychiatric harm. Yes. And you would, you as a medic, I suspect, well, what, what threshold am I supposed to be applying here? Mm -hmm. 
but I think the bit people don't quite often don't listen, don't, don't follow up on is they, they were saying, if a doctor's explained why they haven't done it, mm -hmm. we're going to give you a lot of leeway. Yeah. Because what the, if you think about it, judges are human. Mm. What they would like from you is an explanation about why I did what I did, mm. which is why we spend our entire time as lawyers banging on about the fact, could you please explain mm. what you're doing? Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I suppose medical notes sometimes two or three years later don't explain what was happening on the fringes, was was happening on the peripheries, and what we were dealing with 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 otherwise the the, the other fallout that you were seeing. If I'm if I'm seeing 16, 16 patients in a shift and uh, dealing with three or four really hard things at, at that moment in time, then each decision could could be questionable. As if if this is my only patient, or if I'm only seeing one or two patients, it's a different matter. But yes. It is. It is. I mean, obviously, then then you run into the interesting aspects of the courts will sometimes say, well, as it were, Dr. Tybalt, we don't care. Yeah. You know, we don't care because you shouldn't have been in a position where you were taking on more than you were, in fact, yeah. capable of dealing with. Yes. And then you do get into this, this I mean, horrendously complex, which obviously at the moment is particularly complex hmm. aspect of, well, I'm extremely stretched. Hmm. Yeah. you know i am extremely stretched how far do you want me to you know me doctor to stretch my physical resources any you know x number of human beings yeah. there are you know y number of people who need seeing how am i supposed to kind of cover myself here yes um alex i've got uh, the little timer here uh, yep. I don't know if you can see it uh we're, we're nearly at the end of, of this one i just wonder if we do a part one and part two so you've asked yep. me some questions and I think maybe if in, people are still interested and not bored to tears of, of, of hearing us waxing lyrical about all these term, terms and terminologies, then, then maybe they'd be interested in, in, in clicking on, on part two where I ask you some questions. Uh, yep. Little spoiler, uh, in, in this one, I'm going to ask you um, uh, what's harm and I'm going to ask you what a decision is. <laughs> two, two rather large questions but yes <laughs> excellent well thank you so much mark we'll we'll, we'll see let's as i say let's see how people like this and if people are interested then, then let us know and we can it, i think i personally think these conversations are so important to have and especially at a time where it's not possible as it were to have the conversations physically in the sense of being in the same room and thinking i think having these conversations virtually well let's make a, a, a silver lining out of the cloud if possible and 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 see if these conversations are ones which can be more easily shared with other people so oh. brilliant thank you so much thank you cheers